verses 1 through 12 is where we'll be today. And in way of just to kind of remind us where we're at here, uh, from the last couple of weeks, we, we really determined that Jesus has definitively established his deity to the people around. The religious leaders, um, everything that had kind of been alluded to and referenced what Jesus was now saying, this is true of me. Okay? And so all of that had happened, and now uh, everything for the Pharisees and the religious leaders is about to kind of go sideways for them. Uh, it, it gets out of their realm of control, and it happens, as we see, in front of everybody. Um, and Jesus, I just want to point this out, Jesus is not slamming the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the scribes just for the fun of it. He's, he's not doing this just to, to be ignorant or to be a jerk. Jesus is doing this. He's saying these difficult things because eternity is at stake. So brothers and sisters, it's the same for us today. Eternity is at stake with these words that we hear. And I don't want us to read them in any other light than that. Because if the, if the Pharisees continued in the ways that they were going, or if the people that saw them and admired them followed in their footsteps, then as Jesus describes them later on in this chapter, they will remain children of hell. Okay? This is, of course, not what Jesus wants for them. And so he is, I believe here, rebuking them out of love. In the first 12 verses that we're going to read, Jesus is explaining why the the ways of the Pharisees are wrong and evil. So he sets up the rest of this chapter here in the first 12 verses by explaining why what they're doing is wrong. And then the rest, you know, verses 13 through 36 at least, are Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on people that remain in this way that remain hearing the truth, but their hearts not being changed. These are the, the seven woes that are probably titled in your, in your Bible of this chapter. Now again, uh, we need to pause and consider the sin that still remains in our own hearts as we read through this text. We need to reflect on, reflect honestly on what Jesus is saying, not just to the Pharisees and the scribes, but to you and to me. As Jason prayed, we desperately need to hear from the Lord in this today. We ought to be, as we read through this, continually asking, is this describing me? I ought to be asking as we read through this and talk about this, is this describing Rod Omis? Inevitably, it will at times. Um, but when it does, what do we do? And that's what we're going to talk more about today. When confronted with hypocrisy, we tend to respond in a lot of different ways, right? You've seen it, uh, you have responded in these ways, but when someone calls you out or points out something in your life that isn't consistent, we most of the time will first respond with defensiveness, right? That's, no, that's, that's not really true. Or we will try to pass the blame on to someone else. Well, I'm like this because of this person, because of this situation, or whatever it might be. Sometimes we just try and hide it, or we try to bury it 
under even more hypocrisy. This is, these are all dangerous responses here. Or, when confronted with hypocrisy, we admit our shortcomings. We confess this true, this is true, and we release them to our Savior. How do we respond? Well, we can allow the truth of the gospel to penetrate our wandering hearts and create in us a clean one, as we just sang. Or we can pile hypocrisy upon hypocrisy and dig that hole deeper and deeper and jade and harden our hearts more and more to the gospel, which is obviously not what we want. So, in reading this text, as we're about to do, may God expose those blind spots that we have. May God save us from ourselves today. So in your Bible, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Verse 8, But you are not called to be rabbi, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is calling out two groups of people here. It's identified in the first verse, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now these were two groups... Um, they weren't the only two groups who needed to repent. We've already seen the Sadducees, the Herodians, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes. All of these people are groups of people that were opposing Christ and his message of truth. So the scribes and the Pharisees aren't the only ones that Jesus is pointing out in reality here, but they serve as the most observable example to the rest of everybody. For all intents and purposes, in this Section, Jesus is defining what hypocrisy is. He's defining what it means to be a hypocrite. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were two distinct groups, but there was some overlap and there was some similarities between them. The scribes, for example, were professional interpreters, experts of the Torah itself. So they would uh, interpret the Torah, tra- transfer it to other writings. Um, the Pharisees, however, were experts in theological matters that the Torah brought up. So the scribes interpreted the text and copied it. The, the Pharisees would take that and then say, well, how does this apply now? How do we implement these things? Okay. The scribes were primarily concerned, as I mentioned, with dotting the T's, dotting the I's and crossing the T's of the text. Uh, when it came to copying and interpreting books of the law. But the Pharisees were more concerned with how the theological issues that came out of the law affected everyday life. 
So they're connected, but they're kind of separate groups. Jesus seems to actually be okay with the Pharisees' official function as interpreters of the law here, which is interesting. Um, he says, these guys, they do sit on Moses' seat, and the people should do and observe everything that they say. What they teach is not wrong. Right? We talked about this last week and a couple weeks before that. These guys identified correct things about Jesus. He speaks the truth. He's not swayed by people's opinions. Those sorts of things. What they're saying is not the problem here. Jesus identifies the problem here. Um, which we'll talk about in a minute. He says that they sit on Moses' seat. Okay, um, this, this could have actually been a specific seat, a chair, back in that time. Um, recent archaeological discoverings could point to that, or it could just be a metaphor for the fact that they are a symbol of the authority that Moses had. In reality, it doesn't really matter if it's an actual seat or it's just a metaphor. They got the point. We need to get the point, and the point is that if they sit on Moses' seat of authority, what they say should be obeyed because Moses gave the law. God gave the law through Moses, really. But here, I think we can maybe infer and see that Jesus is really saying, whatever they tell you about that law, about the law of Moses, do that. So he says in the text, whatever they tell you, verse 3, do and observe whatever they tell you. We can say whatever they tell you about Moses' law. Because they're sitting on his seat and they carry that authority. But, and there's this big word, Jesus says... Do what they say, but not what they do. Right? He is delineating between the law of Moses, which was right, and he says should be obeyed, and all of those extra biblical additions that the Pharisees were adding on constantly. He's, he's splitting those in two. Listen to the law of Moses, but don't practice the way that the Pharisees do. Don't emulate their actions. Why? Because they preach, but they don't practice. So here is the first indicator of hypocrisy. You don't practice what you preach. Now we've heard that term before. We know that phrase. It is a familiar one. We can relate to that. We can probably pretty quickly think of people that we know that fall into this category. Oh man, that describes this so-and-so. They tell me a lot of good things, but man, I look at their life and they're not doing this. Now we need to be discerning and we need to be observing other people and fruit in their life if they're claiming to be a Christian. But guys, this is not about that primarily. This is about turning that spotlight of the truth of the gospel into our own hearts and saying, Lord, where do I preach but not practice? Let me ask you a question. Do non-Christians like hypocrisy? Do Christians like hypocrisy? It's, it's pretty clear that no one appreciates a hypocrite. Okay? we're all in general pretty appalled by hypocrisy. Even if you have very little, slim to no morals in general, you don't like people that don't practice what they preach. Um, 
Why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't like hypocrisy? I, I think the, the real easy answer is we don't like being lied to, do we? We don't like being lied to. I mean, if you ask any person on the planet, in any culture, any language that you have to speak, if you ask them and you say, do you like being lied to? Everyone is going to say no. And so we know across the board, hypocrisy is a problem. And I think it's this way because there's a part of us that actually values the truth. Right? That's why you can ask anyone from any culture at any time in history, do you like being lied to? And they're going to say no, because we value the truth, at least to a certain degree. But this is exactly what Jesus is accusing the Pharisees and scribes of here. He's saying their act, don't, don't do what they do, because their actions lie. Their actions are lies because they don't match the truth of their words. They claimed to be holy and righteous by what they said with their mouths. But when you watched their actions, it told a different story. They preached, but they didn't practice. So let me propose something today that just honestly just makes me shudder myself. What if our actions, what if our practices actually do tell the truth about who we are to a certain degree. What if the way that we live out each day is actually the real us? That's hard because I can think back to just not too long ago and think of actions that if you saw me doing or thoughts that you saw me thinking, you would have a hard time reconciling that with scripture. And so would I, but I'm no different than you. What if the way that we act really says a lot about who we are? What if the way that I treat the server at the restaurant who butchered my order and got it all wrong, what if the way I treat them is actually an indication of what's going on in my heart? What if the way that I speak to my spouse is really actually representative of what's going on in my heart? What if my lack of respect for a boss actually reveals the problem that I have with authority just in general? What if the, what, what if what comes out of our lives actually reveals what's down in our heart? I think we can make that correlation because Jesus does that, doesn't he? Out of the mouth or out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is in your heart will come out to some degree. And not just out of our mouth, but out of our lives. Brothers and sisters, our need for a Savior and our need for continued repentance are put on display every time we don't practice what we preach. It is a banner in my life that says, Rod Omis needs Jesus. Every day. Our practice, then, needs to be not getting defensive, not covering up, not passing the blame. Our, our practice then needs to be constantly running to the cross for forgiveness and grace. Our practice needs to be a lifestyle then of repentance and not thinking too, too highly of ourselves. Our practice needs to be looking to Jesus for our example of consistency 
not each other. Because each other is going to blow it regularly. We can't be the only example of the consistency of the lifestyle that we should live. We should look to others. I should be giving that, displaying that example. But I'm going to blow it. And so when I do, what happens then? If you're looking to me or if I'm looking to you, I mean, we're going to be disappointed. And when that happens, what does that do about our faith in God? Does that, does that crack that a little? If our faith is in Christ alone, it won't. Even when the person you admire the most blows it, your faith won't falter because you weren't looking to them anyway. You're looking to Jesus. And that's how it ought to be all the time. Unfortunately, we have ample examples of bad behavior, though, of people who aren't practicing what they preach, of the wrong kind of behavior. You know, it could have been apparent in your life that I've, I've heard of, I don't know if it was joking or not, but I've heard of parents who say, do what I say, but don't do what I do. I mean, really though, um, how often does this occur? How often do we, we may not say that right out front, but how often do we do something as an adult and then look to a kid and say, no, don't, don't copy that, don't do that. We say certain words that only adults are allowed to say. You can't say that. Only adults. Where's why is it, why are we so inconsistent? It could have been a parent, guys. It, it could have been a teacher. It could have been a politician. It could have been a church leader that didn't practice what they preach. So what happens when that is the case? The person that we put up on this pedestal and admire the most falls when a fault is revealed in them. The answer is not to to just totally throw trust in them out the window and mistrust them ever again. The answer is not to grow angry at this. The answer is to take the trust that we had put in them and put it in the person that we should be putting it in, in Jesus Christ, the one who's never going to let us down or not practice what he preached. The answer is not to to shun that person that falls or avoid them altogether. The answer is to offer grace and accountability to them. It's The answer is not to gossip about these people. It's to come alongside of them, to be open about our struggles together, and then to run after Jesus together. That's the answer. That's the answer to hypocrisy that we see in our brothers' and sisters' lives. The hypocrisy in our own lives is to admit it, confess it, accept accountability, and move forward Chasing Jesus together. Now, it's not lost on me that I am a pastor that stands in front of you guys almost every week and tells you a bunch of the things that the Bible says that you ought to be doing when in reality, I don't do them all perfectly myself. And to some degree, every time I get up here, every time Jason gets up here, any other pastor, elder gets up here and speaks, we're practicing in, in hypocrisy to a degree. Because I know I'm telling you guys, hey, practice what you preach. And then, you know, in the next couple of days, I'm going to go, go out and I'm not going to do that. I, I understand that. The, the issue that I think we need to get over here is the fact that no one's going to do this perfectly. 
but we don't have to make peace with that. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's going to happen. It's the same way with grace in our sin, of our sin. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, no, God forbid that. Don't use God's grace as an excuse to sin. Don't use the fact that everybody does it as an excuse to keep doing it. That's antithetical. That's opposite of what Scripture teaches us about the grace of God and how we respond to that. We want to do the right thing. We constantly strive for it. So, by God's grace, we can see our sin for what it really is. We can know our limitations. We can admit our faults. And we desire to trust Him more today than we did yesterday. We desire to love Him today more than we did yesterday. To believe Him more today than yesterday. To obey Him more than we did yesterday. See, if if we use a scale, which isn't exactly accurate, but if we use a scale of this is where we want to be in our Christian life, and this is where we are, the idea is to get there, but it's not going to come overnight. So the question that we ask is not, are we there yet? It's, do we love, do you love God more today than you did yesterday? Did you take that little step? Are you growing in faith more and more? You're not going to do this perfectly in life. Neither will I. But if you are a new creation in Christ, then the fruit that's produced will bear it out. It will show it to a certain degree. The problem with the Pharisees here in Matthew 23 is that the fruit never did bear it out. And that just meant that their hearts remained far from God. We, brothers and sisters, must beware of these inconsistencies in our own life. We must beware of the dissonance between what we say we believe and the reality of how we live. Said another way, we're all sinners, so there will always be some inconsistency. But as believers, we must refuse to make peace with that. It's not okay. I gotta keep running to the cross. I gotta keep seeking forgiveness. Continually repent to the one who offers forgiveness. What excuses do you make for the sin that entangles you? We make all kinds of them. We justify sin in all kinds of creative ways. I don't know that we sin any more than we did, than people did back, you know, BC. But I think the way that we excuse them has gotten more creative. And that's just scarier for us in 2019. Uh, hypocrisy, brothers and sisters, is bondage. But the gospel is freedom. Hypocrisy is lies. And every one of us have done that. We've been guilty of it. You know that when, when you, when you tell a lie and you're really committed to that lie, you've got to tell more, don't you? And you remain in the web and it gets stronger and stronger and, and that is bondage. But the gospel is freedom. It cuts through all of that. It's joy for the Christian. It's freedom for the Christian, for the non-believer. Our union with Christ has set us free. It didn't bind us up tighter. And Jesus is going to say almost that very thing to these people, to the Pharisees, in the next couple of weeks that we get into. He's, 
Jesus didn't come to bind us up with laws and rules and regulations. He came to set us free from the sin that entangles us. The, the heavy burdens, if you look at verse 4, he says, They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them even with their finger. These heavy burdens are the extra-biblical traditions, these special rules created by the Pharisees. And if you look back, there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of extra rules that the Pharisees commanded, demanded of the people. In order to be right with God, obey these rules. And they were oppressive to the people. They were intended probably, to make the Old Testament relevant to new life situations that they were in. But in reality, they just created massive burdens that quickly became oppressive to the people. And brothers and sisters, that's not the message of Christianity. Rules are not the message of Christianity. Jesus was asked about this. We just talked about it not long ago. And they were trying to trap him. And they said, which of the Ten Commandments is the best, is, is the most important? And Jesus condensed it all down. He said, love God and love people. See, Jesus cuts through all of the hypocrisy, all of the legalism in our lives, in the Pharisees here. He cuts right through it. It's simple, isn't it? Love God, and in turn, you will love other people. Christianity is not about a list of rules. And we, I think, as Baptists, have an extra hard time moving away from that concept. Because what has identified our denomination for a long time is rules. You don't dance, you don't play cards, and you don't do a bunch of other stuff that in reality don't have much to do with the gospel itself. And so we have to constantly be thinking in this way of what is primary to the gospel. It's not a bunch of rules that we enforce on one another. Do I love God? If I do, do I love other people as I ought to? This is how we need to be thinking about this together. And Jesus, remember, he didn't come to put them into bondage. He came to set them free. Here's the second indicator of hypocrisy, that you are not content with the approval of God alone. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and in greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. So let's define a couple of words there because there's a fun one in particular. Uh, Phylacteries, or in the Old Testament, they were little, probably leather cubes that actually had pieces of parchment that had Scripture Verses written on them. In Deuteronomy 11.18, they are told, Israelites are told to bind these things around their foreheads. And so they would take this very literally and they would wear a headband with a little box with scripture in it, sometimes on their arms, and those were called phylacteries. And so Jesus is, is condemning the Pharisees here because he's saying, you make these things really big and decorate them really gaudy so that everybody can see them so that they know how awesome you are that's what the point of what they were doing was 
So that's what phylacteries were. The fringes that the Jesus references here are the tassels that were on the corners of the garment that that people wore, men specifically wore, and they were to remind the wearer uh, to obey the commandments that were given. Right, So these were rem- designed to be reminders to go back to what God said. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders were using them as a way to puff themselves up and elevate themselves a- a- against and above the, moder- the typical man of the day. These were God's good... God gave them commands. Do these things. But they were for re- specific reasons. And the problem here was that the Pharisees, how they treated these instructions... See, instead of drawing attention to God and His Word, the scribes and the Pharisees used these things to draw attention to themselves. And that's why they were condemned here. The more and more we yearn for and receive the applause of men, the less and less we are content with the approval of God. Jesus says, uh, I think it's in Matthew 6, He says, Don't practice your righteousness in front of other people. The Pharisees, they do this. When they give, they make a big deal out of it. They want the applause of men, and when they receive it, that's all the reward that they get. You want the applause of men? Okay, you might get it, but you won't get God's approval that way. So we have to turn this onto our own hearts and ask the questions, do do I do good? Only when other people are going to see it? Or do I do good because of God's love for me and my desire to love Him back? Do you obey God only when others will see it and think better of you? Or do you obey because it's the right thing to do whether you're being watched or not? Jesus says in Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward for your heaven, for your Father, from your Father who is in heaven. Be careful of the motivation of why you do good works. We're called to do them. Don't mistake that. Don't forget that. But why are you doing them? For other people to see and think better of yourself? Or so that God gets the glory? There's a difference. The third indicator of hypocrisy is is this, that you delight in authority over others. Verses 8 through 12 touch on this. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, when I say you delight in authority over others, I don't, I don't mean like an authority like a teacher is over her students or, um, uh, even a, a politician over the people under their charge or a pastor or a boss or a captain. Um, you know, it's right for those in authority to uh, enjoy their work and to do it as unto the Lord. This becomes an issue of hypocrisy when someone uses that leadership or authority to assert some kind of superiority over other people. Wrongly. The scribes and the Pharisees were calling themselves rabbis and teachers and spiritual fathers and instructors. And what they were doing in all of that was taking people's eyes off of the true instructor and putting it on themselves. 
We have a very inward example here that Jesus is giving of what not to do. Don't be this way. Don't do these things. This can't happen. This should not happen in our home, in our workplace. And I think by the context here in Matthew 23, this really ought not to happen in the church. I want us to turn to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> Pastors are instructed here in this text that we'll read to exercise oversight and leadership but not in a domineering way. Look at chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. This is exhortation to elders in the church. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I want to notice two things here. There's a lot more, but I just want to point out two things in the context of Matthew 23. The first is that, Pastors are in a place of, of oversight and authority in the church with people under their care. That's not wrong. That's not bad. Um, in fact, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that church leaders are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's, that's an important role that's played in the body of Christ. It's not one to be taken lightly. Strong biblical leadership in the church is a blessing, you guys. This is a good thing. Pastors and teachers have some authority in the church, but they also have a great deal of responsibility as well. A great deal of responsibility. The second thing that I want to notice is that pastors are not to exercise authority in a domineering way. Guys, as a pastor, I'm called to listen to you, to really listen, um, to protect you from false doctrine, from situations where uh, you may be encouraged to sin. Um, my job as a pastor is to gently correct you when you're veering off the path of, of where God would want you. My job as a pastor is to love you, to care for you, to lead you, to serve you, but not in a way that puts attention on me. The pastors and elders of this church desire, heartfelt desire is to lead this flock with integrity to serve this church body in love, and to keep us focused, as, as Peter says, not on us, but on the chief shepherd. That's what our task is to do. Guys, if in my leading I forget this, I pray that the other elders and those of you who really love me would lead me back to what God has really called me to do. If the talk around our church, this place, is something good or bad that Rod Omis has done and not the glory of God that's revealed in his son through his word, then I need to, then we need to seriously reflect and refocus on Jesus. 
Because I will mess it up. Guaranteed, I will let you down. But that's why the church follows the chief shepherd and not a man. You do not follow Rodomus. Praise God for that. You should praise God for that. You follow the chief shepherd. Now, I'll do my best to be the example of Christ that I ought to be. But I'm going to blow it. And if your heart is broken when that happens, it was placed in the wrong person. The Pharisees loved talking about all the rules that they would follow and that everyone else couldn't do. They loved the best seats, being referred to with names of authority. They loved doing good things for everyone to see. But unfortunately, the Pharisees couldn't see clearly through all of their pride, and so they missed Jesus' remedy for the problem. Humility. That was it. Humility. Brothers and sisters, humility, uh, rather pride, rather, is a two-edged blade. Pride is a two-edged blade. It cuts both you and it cuts everyone around you. If I'm doing better than the person next to me, I feel good about myself spiritually and I look down on that other person. That pride has then cut them. If I'm doing worse in my mind than the person sitting next to me, I feel bad about myself spiritually and exalt the other person I've cut myself. This is the wrong perspective in both of those scenarios. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, equal in standing before God through Christ. He alone is superior, not me over you or you over me. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he's got a whole chapter devoted to the sin of pride. If you've not ever picked that book up, I would encourage you. It is, it's, it's a good read. It's good to read. Um, but in the book, he says this about pride. He uses the word conceit in place of pride. So I've used pride instead for our context here. He says, if you think you're not prideful, it means you're very proud indeed. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Now, compare these verses with me. Matthew 23, verse if you've still got that open, keep your finger in First Peter. Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. First Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves in humility, all of you, toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's not a surprise that these verses were brought to our attention today. This is not a coincidence. Jesus goes against the grain of every leadership model of his day and of our day. And he says, in order to be the lead, you become the least. That does not work in our society today, does it? Most of you work secular jobs and you recognize that. You try to, to serve and to get out of the limelight and you will be passed over and stepped on and used. And that is a result of sin in the world. Sin in people's life and in our own hearts. 
But Jesus goes against that. And he says that God humbles the self-exalted and exalts the self-humbled. You see that? that? That's It's contrary and opposite of what we think in our nature. We think to be the best, you get ahead, and you are smarter and faster and stronger and better. And Jesus says, no, to get ahead in the kingdom that matters, you serve people. You lower yourself below them. You self-humble. So here's some more reflection questions to ask ourselves. Are you constantly w- looking for ways and opportunities to serve other people? To set them above yourself? Or are your thoughts more about what's best for you in a certain situation? The principle of humility is expressed most clearly in the way we serve others or fail to serve others. Jesus modeled this kind of service, though, didn't he? And he did it perfectly. He took on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. God himself humbled himself to be the least. He humbled himself by being obedient, even to death on a cross. And because of this, God has highly exalted him. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of humility that you and I are called to, to sacrifice for the sake of one another. That is easier said than done. Um, Even well-meaning Christian advice doesn't always go this way, does it? You're told to do what's right for your family, whether it hurts someone else or not, whether it inconveniences someone else or not. But Jesus didn't come with that in mind. He came to serve. And this is the kind of humility that we ought to have. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. This will be the last text that I ask you to turn to today. But Philippians chapter 2. I could not think of a better scripture to to look at together as we close than the example of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself." By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4 says, or verse 3 says, In humility, 
Look back at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. This is the mindset, brothers and sisters, that we are to have with one another. Count others more significant than ourselves. Look on the interests, not only of ourselves, but the interests of others. The incredible thing, and this is something that only God can design, the incredible thing about all of this is that when we have the posture of humility, having the mind of Christ, we will begin to find that we practice what we preach so much more. When we count others as more significant than ourselves, when we put their needs above our own, and we can start applying this immediately in our marriages with our kids, when we start doing these things, I think we're going to find that we much more often than before practice what we preach and avoid the trap of the Pharisees and avoid the trap of the religious leaders. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2 real quick. Just again. Have this mind among yourselves after you've been a Christian for 10 years. No. After you've read the Bible through at least twice. No. After you've had three days without sinning. No. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Not someday... Now, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you have the mind of Christ. Now, we don't always operate using that mind. But it's ours in the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, when we operate in that, when we, are, when we have the mind of Christ and we look at conflict, when we look at difficult, challenging situations with brothers and sisters, with our own family, with whatever the case may be, when we look at it through the mind of Christ we will begin to practice what we preach more and more. So this week, the charge is, be intentional about this. Because if you just do what you've always done, you will not practice this. Because that's not our default. Our default is selfishness, as observed in the Pharisees. And so as we've, def- as Jesus has defined hypocrisy today, let's recall, very practically, no one likes being lied to. So is our lifestyle, are our actions telling lies about what we say we believe? Be intentional this week about humbling yourself before God and serving one another. That is the task that we're set out. Next week, we will look in 13 and beyond and start looking at the reason, some of the reasons um, that Jesus was condemning the Pharisees. It doesn't get any less easy, I don't think, um, coming up. And yet, in God's goodness, He's designed that we go through this right now. And so this is for us, brothers and sisters. 2019, new year, new you. Humble. Humble you. Let's pray. God, uh, this does go against what we feel, what we even are taught by observing the world around us. It, it is not easy to humble ourselves, and yet, in, with the mind of Christ, we're called to do it. Lord, we recognize and readily admit that we will not do this perfectly all the time. But Lord, help us to not use that as an excuse to continue being selfish, to continue in sin, 
Lord, you have called us out. You have separated us. We are cut off from the former life. You have made a new creation for all those who are in Christ. And so as we live and operate in that, Lord, help us to live and operate using the mind of Christ that we have in the Spirit. Give us grace. Lord, give us grace to humble ourselves before you, knowing that you exalt those who do, that you will lift us up. Lord, help us to love one another and to think of others as more important than ourselves this week. In your name we pray. Amen.